I invite you to turn in the Word to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, as we continue in our series looking at the thought life of Christian disciples. And this evening we come to the fourth of the terms laid out here, the fourth of these ideas that we are to especially focus our attentions on and to direct our minds to. Beginning at verse 8, hear together with me the word of the Lord. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's ask the Lord to bless our thinking. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for your spirit. We ask that you would please shine upon us through the preaching of the word. Please give us understanding. Excite us with the desire to serve you, to become like you. We ask all of these things for Jesus' glory and for our joy. For in his name we pray. Amen. You have words, and then you have the way that you hear and understand a word based on your own associations with it. Sometimes the associations you make with a word can increase and improve and clarify your understanding, particularly about the Bible. But sometimes the associations you have with a word can actually work against your understanding of what the Bible says, or just in general communication. You think of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, our Father who art in heaven. Your experience of that prayer can be affected positively or negatively based on the associations you make with the word father, depending what perhaps your father was like or what kind of father you are. And even so, when we come to any word in the Bible, we have to come back and ask, what does it mean in its own context? What did the Lord intend? And not bring to it our own expectations. And the same is true of this word purity. I wonder what associations do you first form? What first comes to mind when you hear purity? In the youth groups of 20 and 30 years ago in broader evangelicalism, it was pretty common to encourage high schoolers to wear a purity ring, a so-called purity ring, that represented certain commitments to wait until marriage for intimacy. And there was a lot of value in that, I'm sure. But on the other hand, for a lot of people, that word purity, especially in a Christian context, is overwhelmingly associated with only one aspect of holiness rather than with all holiness. Or maybe you have different associations. One of the first, in fact, when I started preparing this, one of the first things that came to mind for me was an experience I had in seventh grade. I went on a backpacking trip for about two weeks with the Boy Scouts through the Sierras. Two weeks is long enough to be way out there, way out there. And I remember at some point a guide who had taken youth on this trip a dozen times, who's very familiar with the area, he told us that we were welcome to stick our water bottles into water that was flowing, basically jumping off a rock face. And we had always been told as Boy Scouts, don't drink the water, you have to purify it. You've got your potable water tablets or whatever system you're using, some life straw. 
And he said, no, no, this face is so vertical and the water comes out of the mountain that there are basically no chances of animals contaminating this water, so it's safe for you to drink. This is pure. This is pure mountain water. Since seventh grade, that has stuck with me as, oh, that's kind of the, the gold standard of pure. And then even as I say gold standard, another idea comes to mind concerning purity. What did the apostle have in mind when he says, think on whatever is pure? What are you being called by the Holy Spirit to set your mind upon as one of the major categories of Christian thought? The term that's used here had a significance in the Greco-Roman world. This is a Greek term that he's using. In the surrounding world, it might surprise you to know that the term originally, so far as scholars can gather, was first a religious term. And it had to do with the feeling that people had about the awesomeness of the gods. The first thought when they thought pure, what they're talking about is the sense of we are small and weak and they are great. They are above us. They are powerful. And over time, it came to be used in an extended way for being consecrated to the gods. Not unto your own purposes, whether it's an object or a person, to be devoted to the gods was pure. And only later do we come to associate this by analogy with things that are uncontaminated, whether it be water, gold, or any other thing. Now, how was it used by the biblical authors, say, of the Old Testament? In the writings of Moses, the term that gets translated into the Greek when the Old Testament is translated into what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation, the word has to do, again, predominantly with God himself, with his holiness. But by the time you reach the latter prophets, it has an emphasis that is largely on moral commitment to the Lord and spiritual commitment to the Lord. To be pure is to be consecrated to the righteousness, to the worship of God. To be fully devoted to him. And it's that sense of purity that tends to be most reflected in the New Testament. So when we here think on whatever is pure, what the apostle has in mind are things that typify uncontaminated consecration to God and his righteousness. Things that picture that are things that exemplify that. And the Holy Spirit is calling us then to meditate on such things. But think again why you are called to meditate on those things, not just tonight, but as a habit of life, to think on what is pure. Verse 9, see what it says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The goal of meditation is imitation. You are called to think on what is pure in order that you might become pure, that you might walk in true purity. Not only in one area of life, but again, it's not purity if it's not all areas of life. And we're called unto that in order not that we would obtain our salvation or merit it, but that we would experience the peace of God. He is a good father. He's not going to reinforce sin. And so to experience the fullness of his presence and joy, we are to walk in a certain way. And he calls us to that this evening as those who are called in Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, Whoever hopes in Christ purifies himself even as Christ is pure. And the word there, purifies, purifies himself, the tense of it means for the rest of your life. It's not something you accomplish 
You know, at 21, I purified myself and I've been clean ever since. No, this is all the time you are coming back to the pursuit of purity. Now, as we look at this passage, as we consider this idea of purity, we're going to examine it under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But basically, what I want to do is to try to provide for you in the two first headings some material for meditation. The first is going to concern the Old Testament. The second will concern the New Testament. And then simply lay before you some practical advice, some pastoral advice. Nothing in all of this, I trust in one sense, will be radical or new. And yet, is it not the case? Every one of us is aware that we lack the purity that Christ has. And that's the standard. Purify yourself even as he is pure. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. How do you grow in that even if it's never perfected in this life? It will not be by accident. It will be by intentionally looking upon examples of that which is pure and then charting a course to walk in that same way. So that's what we desire to do tonight. And as our first main heading, let me set before you just several object lessons from the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant refers to that time from basically Moses until Christ. The Lord gave many different means of picturing the blessings that belong to us ultimately through faith. And a lot of different object lessons kind of pictures to help us understand spiritual things. And I want to set before you simply three that give you some sense of what purity is and why it matters. Many more could be added, but these are three that I think you should be familiar with, especially younger people here. When you think of purity, these things should come to mind. The first is this, and in fact, I invite you to turn to Leviticus 24, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible. In association with the tabernacle and later the temple, there are all kinds of objects which are called pure. And they are required to be pure in order to be allowed for use. And those in a whole range of ways, according to the book of Hebrews, picture heavenly realities and spiritual realities. Leviticus 24 concerns the olive oil that was used to light the tabernacle. Some of you, I imagine, have had oil lamps in your home, and so kids would know how that works. But you basically fill this vessel with oil, and they used olive oil. And you have a wick, and you light it, and you trim the wick so it's the right length. If it's too long, there's going to be a bunch of soot. And even so, at that time, olive oil was the most common form of lighting. Leviticus 24, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. The lamp represented the people of God, illumined by the Holy Spirit, illumined by the word, bearing witness to his truth, to his throne. And when you think about what is commanded here, they are to use the highest grade oil. Why? Among other things, it's to prevent anything within the tabernacle from being obscured or darkened. When the priest walks in, there's not to be a bunch of smoke. 
I have this old kerosene lamp, and now and then I'll take it out with my boys. They're interested in it, and you light it up. And, of course, a child is going to be interested in the mechanism. They turn it too long, and now you've got all this black smoke coming out. Now, it stains the whole outside of the, of the kerosene lamp. And the same would have been true in the tabernacle, the beautiful furnishings inside, which were pictures of God's throne presence in heaven. Imagine if they had used low-grade olive oil and it's soot everywhere. No! Well, even so, we are called to remove impurity from our thoughts, from our actions, in order that we, together as a church and as individual lights, would in no way obscure what God desires the world to see and one another to see. We shed light upon the Lord. The gold and silver which adorned those vessels is another example of purity. Look at verse 4. Leviticus 24, verse 4. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. Virtually everything inside of the tabernacle was either made of or covered in the purest gold and silver. Why? It wasn't simply because it was expensive. The Lord is not poor, and the money, in a sense, makes no difference. But think of the qualities that actually give value to those elements. The fact that when they are in their purest form, when all the pot metal amalgam is taken out of them, there is greater luster, they radiate light, and they are no longer susceptible to corrosion. Gold won't rust. And so as those things are removed, this becomes a beautiful picture of what the church is meant to be and shall be forever. Revelation chapter 1 and 2, Jesus addresses the churches, and he describes them each as lampstands. That is what we are. And he warns churches that walk in impurity, who become characterized by impurity. He says, I will take away your lampstand. The Lord calls us then to appreciate purity as a way of bearing light in the world and being free of corruption. And then one more picture, and it's the priests themselves. The priests had a duty to remain ritually pure at all times. There were many things that they could not touch or do that other people could. The priests had to remain ritually pure, and this was teaching us lessons about Christ and about ourselves. We are all, in some sense, part of a holy priesthood, according to 1 Peter. And as they kept ritual purity, this was teaching us the need to remain pure in order that they might minister. They could become disqualified for a time or permanently if they became contaminated. Say they touch a dead body, and now they have to enter a period of time where they can't actually serve in the tabernacle. Is it not also the case that as impurity dominates any part of our thoughts or our actions, we can become disqualified from effective service as well? Hear what it says in James 1 verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
And so as you reflect on what you are called to, those priests in the past, they were a picture. But if anything, you have an even higher calling to avoid that which is genuinely impure. It was one thing not to eat pork. It was just a picture. How much more weighty is it that we should put away from our tongues any kind of deceit, perversion, violence? The Lord has called you. You are now a priest. You are not your own. You have a holy calling. And so as you grapple with sin, call that to mind. I am not my own. I am a priest. I am serving in an even higher priesthood. All of these object lessons from the Old Covenant are designed to help us understand what this purity is talking about. We find other pictures in the New Testament as well. I don't belabor the Old Testament. Our second main heading is to simply lay before you two of the images in the New Testament that give you some sense of what this purity is, what it looks like, what we are to aspire to. The first is consider, to consider the saints in glory. I could add the angels as well. If you were to read through the book of Revelation, you'll find this word pure comes up again and again. And it comes up frequently in the context of the clothing that the saints are pictured wearing. Now, I think that this is spiritual language. Remember, this is, as it describes it in Revelation 15 and 19, it's before the resurrection. That is, they don't yet have their bodies. So I don't know, in a literalistic sense, what it would mean for them to be clothed in pure white linen. But these are spiritual images impressed upon the prophet to help you understand significant things. Here they are clothed, as it says in Revelation 15 and 19, clothed in pure white linen. And then it describes how they become clothed in this way. It says that they had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Christ's atoning blood has cleansed them from all guilt, all corruption. And he's brought to fulfillment their glorification. That's your future. I won't ask you to actually raise your hands, but show of hands, who's going to be alive in 120 years? Probably none of us. Where will we be if we know Jesus Christ? Revelation 15 and 19 is describing you. That's your future. To be clothed, pure white linen. Why then should we go about slopping filth on us now? That is no longer appropriate for us, knowing what our future is. Why did Christ redeem us with his blood? Titus chapter 2, verse 14, says this. He gave himself for us in order to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did he save you? It was not simply to demonstrate justifying grace. It certainly was that as well. But it can't stop there. He redeemed you in order to purify for himself a people zealous for good works. To put on this clothing. As Revelation says, the bride was dressed in righteous deeds. And in fact, that brings us to that second image, that of the bride of Christ, as a picture of the whole church in her final glory. In fact, look with me over at Revelation chapter 19. 
The bride is spoken of several times throughout the book of Revelation, particularly 19 and 21. But she is a representation of the whole church in glory as one people, prepared to be united forever with Christ. And in Revelation 19, verse 7, we read this, Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Remember again why we are called to meditate. In order that we imitate, that we practice. How much would it be a benefit for you to dwell on the pleasure Christ has like a bridegroom? Knowing that his bride is getting ready to be in his presence. Any who have been married... That's one of the delights of the wedding day for the groom, to be off somewhere at relative ease and to know that your bride is getting ready and to think she's getting ready in some sense because she loves me. And that's an awesome feeling. If human beings can have that in the smallest way, how much more does Christ delight imperfect as our attempts are and yet truly wrought by the Holy Spirit? How much does he delight to see us strive after purity? To put on our wedding clothes. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2. The Apostle Paul says this. Under the same idea. 2 Corinthians 11 2. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. He's talking about that church. For I promised you to one husband. To present you as a pure virgin to Christ. I am afraid however that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning. Your minds may be led astray from your simple and pure devotion to Christ. There are several things here which could be drawn out. One, his desire for them to be and his seeing them as a pure virgin. The idea of a virgin in some sense being pure is not because in some sense that sexuality is impure of itself. Sometimes these are put as a contrast and it leads to all kinds of mental, emotional, and spiritual unhealth to think that sexuality is impure and this virgin is pure in that sense. The purity of the virgin is the consecration to the one to whom she is betrothed or will be married to. The issue is not intimacy. The issue is about the call to faithfulness in anticipation of an everlasting bond between the church and Christ. The Lord calls us to seek this, to exemplify this, even in this life, knowing that he takes delight in it. More could be said in terms of the New Testament use of the word pure. And I would encourage you, especially some of the younger ones here, maybe some of your parents could come alongside of you and help you learn. I think of the teenagers in particular. How to use very basic Bible software or paper books. They do still exist. Some are in our library where you can find all the instances in the New Testament where it deals with purity and each of these words that we've looked at and see how they're used, see what this means for us. But with the time that remains, what I want to do is simply lay before you, I want to offer you a little bit of pastoral advice in terms of maintaining this kind of purity. And the first is related to really the gospel. 
In fact, I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah in order to see this. Isaiah 61, verse 10. Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel, though it is written about six to seven hundred years before Christ's coming. It is so full of very clear prophecies concerning him that it has that designation, the fifth gospel. And especially as you move towards the end of the book, it's like the dawn breaking. The first part of the book has some glimmers in it of hope, kind of like stars in a dark night, but it can be pretty dreary as it lays out judgment. But then as you move towards the end of the book, more and more you get a sense of what the gospel is bringing. And Isaiah 61 verse 10 speaks of purity being a supernatural, a gracious gift. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It is the Lord by the Holy Spirit, according to the covenant of grace, who takes and applies to you individually the growth that you long for. As you seek it by faith, it is him who has promised to give you these things. If you seek this, seek it believing that it belongs to you in Christ, that he has merited from the Father all the goodwill to see you grow. It's a supernatural gift, and because it's a supernatural gift, no matter how impure you feel this evening, there is hope for you. He can take an unclean thing and make it a clean thing. He can take what was scarlet, and he can make it pure and gleaming. We are not ever in a position where we can just throw up our hands and say, there's no hope for me, but we are to believe that this is a gift. But then by faith, we are called to shun and to flee whatever we know defiles us. By defiles us, I mean where you can sense, and it becomes manifest, evident to you. As I think about these things, as I spend time in these ways, I tend to sense my communion with the Lord dulls. My faithfulness, my ardor to serve him wanes. I begin to compromise in real and specific ways. And each one of us, it's going to be somewhat different. We have to examine ourselves regularly and ask, in what way am I admitting impurity into my life willfully? First John, again, I read this at the outset. First John 3, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. That's our goal. Weakly as we seek it, yet sincerely we seek it. To purify ourselves as he is pure. I'll testify to this that the longer time goes on, the less and less I find that I can stomach. Or It's not even about stomaching in one sense. Unfortunately, I can stomach some things, whether in shows, movies, music. But I listen to less and less of it. I watch less and less of it. And I don't say that at all to boast or to say that you necessarily have to do the same thing. But not everything that is lawful is also helpful. As I have 
changed in this way over the last seven years or so. I don't, it hasn't felt like becoming stronger in the Lord. It has felt like acknowledging my weakness. I'm simply, maybe you're different. I am simply too weak to expose myself for long hours on a regular basis to the mindset of the world, the things they find funny that the Lord does not laugh at, the things that they find entertaining that celebrate evil, the fact that so much of what is presented, you can't actually present without entering into sin to make it. And it's not that I fear if I watch this, I'm going to start using those words, although that does happen, and I'm no exception. But the thought that I may, like Lot and his wife, become simply calloused to those things. I no longer am grieved by them in the same way. To what extent do we make an amalgam of worldliness with the character to which we are called. And so I would encourage you, if you desire to have the purity that the Lord calls you to, you have to intentionally take your eyes and your mind off of those things which, however legitimate, are not helping you, and put them instead, make the predominant focus of your time to be on that which does, which increases purity, which sets a good example While sanctification, I believe, is entirely of grace, yet the Lord uses means and he appoints faith, and it does seem that we will have as much of the Spirit's presence and sanctity as we desire. But because it is of grace, whatever you desire, you may have it. And I'd exhort you, brothers and sisters, to seek it, knowing that therein is an experience, a fuller experience, even as verse 9 says, of the peace of God in Christ. Why don't we ask him even now to help us in this? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to purity. Lord, our flesh recoils at the idea of losing things which bring genuine, albeit partially corrupt, pleasure. We like to laugh. There's all kinds of stimulation in that which is impure. But Lord, we thank you that as you transform us, our appetites, our affections genuinely change. And so we ask, Lord, not merely for a stiff upper lip to adopt a way of life that is not desirable, but that you would truly transform us more and more from glory to glory And in that, Lord, we pray that you would receive all praise as we begin to dress the part of that everlasting wedding. And through that, Lord, we pray that you would draw others to the holiness, the splendor, the light that we cast in the world. For in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.